You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Just when you thought 2020 couldn't get any worse, last night came the news that Fungi, the famous Dingle Dolphin, was missing. The news has obviously caused huge consternation around the country. Now this morning, though, we can bring you some better news. Sean McEntheehy, good morning. Uh, First of all, what happened? Where was Fungi? Well, the concern was growing over the last couple of days, Mary. Um, there were reports that fungi hadn't been seen since Tuesday. Um, s- some were saying since since Sunday even. And that would be unusual that fungi, fungi frequents the mouth of the Dingle Harbour. And he's very consistent, you know. He, he's got he's got set habits and the, the fact that he hadn't been seen was unusual. Now, it has happened in the past that he's gone missing for a few days. But there was concern. And yesterday, uh, a number of the the fungi uh, boats, who the, the boats that operate the tours there, went out to, into the harbour searching for him and spent the afternoon searching. I was speaking to one of the boatmen yesterday and, you know, they, they were concerned, but they weren't panicking, you know. Okay. And then late last night, word filtered through uh, that a fisherman who had returned uh, from the seas last night had spotted fungi on his way back into the harbour, further out in Dingle Bay. Um, there's a lot of da- dolphin activity out there at the moment. And yeah. uh, Paul... Paul Hand has said that perhaps Fungi followed the fishing boats out, met uh, the group of dolphins feeding out there and it was enjoying the company. Now, another theory of thought is that Fungi is quite a solitary creature. He likes to be alone and that when he (laughs) detected other uh, dolphins uh, in in his waters that he's gone into hiding or I suppose in the times we're in that he's self-isolating. I have to ask the stupid question. There's lots of bottlenose dolphins around. How do you know Fungi from the others? Well, speaking to, to Paul Hand um, this morning, he's been fishing the Dingle waters for the last 40 years and he's been he's been looking at fungi for the last 40 years and he's got specific markings on his on his back and that, you know, from... the way he might look at you? <laughs> it's the way he might look at you and, you know, he has, he has certain habits and how he follows boats and that, you know. Yeah, he must be missing the, the, the crowds though, you know, with the tourists gone with COVID and so on. He hasn't, he hasn't had the audience that he's been used to for the past 40 years. Years. That's right. He arrived first arrived here in 1983, and you know, in a way, he kickstarted um, a, a tourism boom in the, in the West Kerry town here. You know, Dingle was a, I suppose, a, a, a traditional fishing town up and up up until then. And while Ryan's daughter made a, a significant impact on the peninsula here, certainly when Fungi came along, you know, he he got the headlines and the fact that he stayed. You have up to 12 boats um, operating out of out of Dingle Pier, and the the season. Is, is is extended you know we have a long tour, tourist season here this year obviously that was was affected in that the boats um, okay, weren't operating for a significant the, the, portion the, the of the season the good news that you're bringing us Sean he's safe and well Fungi well, goes on Sean McIntyre thank you and on the line is Agriculture Minister Charlie McConnellow good morning Minister good morning Anya you're a Donegal TD and Donegal of course now in level 4 Um I don't know whether you heard Dr. Gabriel Scally talking to Mary yesterday, but he was comparing the differences between the way COVID is being dealt with on both sides of the border. The different schools closures, the different symptoms lifts, the different rules about off licenses, the no stay in county rule. So my question is this, given where we are, is there a way back to level two or one for Donegal without all of that cross border differences being sorted? 
Well, I think, first of all, it's important to say that it's important that there is ongoing cross-border cooperation and that that is as close as possible, and certainly um, we have been making every effort in that regard and will continue to continue to do so, Anya. I think there's no doubt that the uh, the move to Level 4 has been is a very difficult one for the three border counties concerned, um, but the reality is that we're in a really difficult situation, not just in the or my own county of Donegal and Cavan and Monaghan, but right across the country, and we have to redouble our efforts and, uh, and make do everything mm-hmm. that has been asked of us now in the period ahead to actually put the, drive the figures back down because what we have seen in recent days is very, very concerning indeed. And um, wh- when we moved to uh, level three in Donegal, we were at a rate of 148 per 100,000 over two weeks. And as of yesterday, we had a rate of 367. Now, while level three measures showed some stabilization in recent days, it, it, stabil- it was stabilizing at a, at a very high rate. And unfortunately, across many other parts of the country, we are seeing the numbers going up. So the message from the government is very clear, very clear. Um, please take the personal responsibility that all of us must show uh, to, to ensure this virus can spread. Seriously, do everything that's being asked of us. Reduce our social contacts. Take personal hygiene very, very seriously as well. And um, it's only by doing that that we, will, we can actually ensure that numbers go down. But it is a really big challenge, and we can't let our hospital uh, system, Anya, be the front line in relation to this. We must be the front line, and by taking united action, and every single person doing that, and, and by us mentoring people within our own family, and also people within our own community, and encouraging everyone around us to take these actions too, that's the only way we will actually see an improvement. Um, but, Minister, uh, the, the fact is, as we heard in the briefing last night from Neffet. The virus in Ireland is not under control. Donegal's in level four, but are we all heading for level five? Um, the Daily Mail reporting, the Irish Daily Mail reporting, that was Neffet's recommendation to government last night. Level five for six weeks. Well, uh, we haven't discussed uh, NEFET's any recommendation or, uh, from NEFET as of yet, but certainly uh, we will be considering any letter that's received from them uh, in tremendous detail and, and working closely with them on you. Um, but I think uh, the, the message has to be, and I mean the message from NEFET as well, is that everyone must take the actions that are being asked of them. And it is possible. But if NEFET is asking the government minister to go to level five for the second time, if this time they're saying, level five for six weeks. Can the government really afford to say no to level saying, Neffet saying level five twice? Well, the government will consider um, all advice from Neffet and, and will be meeting uh, very promptly uh, to actually uh, discuss that on you. So but that I, I meeting is today, message, is it? The key, the key message coming forward from NEFID and the same message from the government as well is that it's everybody taking, the re- taking responsibility here that is what is required in relation to drive cases down. It is possible uh, within level three to suppress cases and bring them down, but only if people actually follow the advice that is being asked of them. And unfortunately, while, while the vast majority have and while, or, or, while the business community have been taking tremendous, uh, making tremendous efforts to make sure their environments are, are, are safe and compliant, not everyone within the community has been has been responsible and it's that that gives the opportunity for the virus to spread and unfortunately it is that that has seen numbers increasing okay. right across the country. So the message to everyone uh, is please take on board the advice, please follow uh, the personal uh, take on, uh, follow everyone's personal responsibility and also mentor and encourage those around you to do that as well in terms of distancing, in terms of masks, um, wearing masks and in terms of 
not making okay. any unnecessary trips or, or and, and not visiting homes unless essential. Point, point made, Minister, uh, and, and it's an important point that's being emphasised again and again uh, throughout the programme and on every programme we're, we're doing at the moment. Uh, can you just confirm, is the Cabinet meeting today to consider that Neffet letter? There hasn't been any meeting arranged yet, Anya. So obviously, right. if uh, the, the letter comes from Neffet, the, the government will decide then how to respond. And, and have you seen that, that le- Neffet letter? Are you aware of them recommending Level 5 for six no, weeks? I, no, I haven't seen any letter in that regard yet, okay. no. Uh, do you agree with politicians calling for early closing of off-licences? Or do you think that would end up like the old Good Friday with everyone running out and buying their cans in the afternoon? Well, I, I think, listen, I mean... Ultimately here, I mean, Anya, it's, it's not necessarily about whether off-licences are open or not, it's about how people are behaving personally. Um, certainly in relation to any discussion around what we do, we can have that at government um, uh, and at cabinet So you're level, not with Heather Humphreys or R- Robert Troy or Patrick O'Donovan uh, on this I, one, I, no? I, th- I think in some ways it's getting up. I mean, in terms of uh, d- times for closing off-licences or in terms of, 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 of enforcement power, or in terms of enforcement powers, the, the key thing here is that uh, as a government or as a state, you can't be on somebody's shoulder all of the time. The only people that can actually ensure this, as the, the rules are actually followed, as people on an individual basis. So I, I think that you know that that's that's critical here. And and rather than actually um, uh, uh, t- saying that we need to bring in laws to do things, it's actually saying that people must take their personal responsibilities really seriously and their responsibilities to their family and to their local community. Okay. And one final question on COVID. What about the responsibility of the GAA? Uh, there are, you know, obviously concerns about uh, the inter-county game starting again and how safe that will be. On the other hand, do we need the game to get us through a dark winter? What should they do? Well, I think it's it's key that everything that is done is done responsibly uh, and in, in adherence of the the public health advice. Unfortunately, you know, there's been numerous instances across the country in in recent days and over the last week or two where public advice, health advice, hasn't been followed um, in in relation to matches, and indeed it has led to spikes in many many areas as well. I think matches, um, intercounty matches, can take place safely, um, but it's essential that, that that discipline is there in that regard. And of course, in relate in relation to the fact that people are more restricted now in what they can do it could it can offer some uh, sense of uh, um, uh, it'll, be, it'll be a welcome relief to people to be able to actually watch an intercounty match on television but only if it's safe to do so and also uh, of course only if if players are comfortable in doing that as well I know there'll be more with Des on sport uh, on that whole question in a while uh, in your own area Minister agriculture students there was a 50 million student hardship fund announced in the budget there was also 18 million made available earlier in the summer which Chagas agriculture students didn't have access to. So Macro want to know, this budget 50 million, will Chagas agriculture students be part of that? Yeah, well, Macro have been in touch with me in relation to this and I've also been in touch with the Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris. There was a 50 million allocation in the budget uh, to support students at, the, at this time, uh, a very difficult time for students both financially and also in terms of, uh, uh, of their daily lives and I will be meeting now with Minister Harris uh, over the next couple of days in relation to discuss this uh, and in particular the, the, the opportunity for agriculture students to be able to avail of that. So you want him to say yes to uh, Chagas students being Certainly, part of this? I, I think uh, agriculture students are experiencing the same difficulties naturally as, as students in any other college and it's important that we work to support them too so I'll certainly be discussing this with Minister Harris in terms of how we can do that. Um, the briefing this morning is that Boris Johnson is going to be making a big statement on Brexit and on uh, the level of talks in response to the EU Council statement. It's expected at some stage today. Um, 
the talk is of ramping up no deal in response to the EU. So that's kind of a blow, isn't it, to our hopes of a deal that would somehow sort out the fisheries problem, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think the advice at all stages uh, has been to ensure we're prepared for a no deal. And that has been the advice at European level has been very much the approach we've taken at national level in terms of our preparedness and also uh, was a context in which we framed our budget. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the, the But how does a fisherman, for instance, in Killybags prepare for simply not having access to the waters they used to be able to fish in? Well, I think in terms a no deal for uh, our agriculture sector or our fishery sector would be massively uh, difficult as it would for the country. But I think in terms of our budget last week, Anya, we put 3.4 billion euro aside in relation to being able to support sectors in that eventuality. But I think the key objective here has to be, and the conclusions of the European Council meeting made this clear last night too, that we do want to have an agreement. We do want as close as possible a relationship with uh, the UK. Um, once the uh, withdrawal, once the uh, transition period finishes at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, but essential to that is that we must have a good outcome in relation to the outstanding issues of level playing field governance and particularly important for, for Ireland is fisheries. And certainly uh, I and my government colleagues in relation to our engagement with uh, the, the Chairman Barnier and the, and, and the EU Commission have made it very clear that fisheries are important to us and that we need, a good, we need to protect them. Because if we don't get that deal and if, uh, and if Boris Johnson does ramp this up, Minister, fisheries could end up like nightclubs during COVID, couldn't it, After in a no-deal Brexit? Yeah, well, listen, 34% of total Irish uh, fish caught are, are caught within uh, UK waters. Um, Anya, and as you know, uh, uh, from my own part of the country, you don't have to travel too far to your, to your in um, UK waters. So it is, it is re- really uh, challenging and existential in relation to the, the, challenge, the threat that it poses. That's why we have ensured in terms of the trade negotiations that the, the negotiations talks on fisheries are tied to other aspects of the trade deal as well and it's important now in the next number of weeks while we do strive to get a deal that that remains the case and that we get a good outcome for for fisheries and also but importantly work towards getting a deal for uh, the EU and and for our own country uh, as well. Agriculture Minister Charlie McConnell, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. Now we're going to Monaghan because people in Cavan, Donegal and Monaghan they are waking up to life under level four. No doubt they'll be hoping that this their efforts will help stem the rise in COVID-19 cases. Nevertheless, the restrictions are going to come as a great blow to those living and working in those counties. Our reporter, Tommy Meskel, is in Monaghan Town for us. Good morning, Tommy. Good morning, Mary, and welcome to Monaghan. We're live on the RT News Channel, and you'll see us here at the Waterside Medical Centre. This is just one of the many GP clinics witnessing the worrying rise in COVID consultations in Monaghan. Last night, the county, along with Donegal and Cavan, entered level four restrictions. Will this be enough to stem the tide, and what will it mean for the people and businesses living and working in these counties? In a moment, we'll speak with the owner of this GP clinic and a publican from Clontibret. But first, I've been speaking with people in Monaghan Town getting their thoughts on the move to Level 4. Measures definitely have to be taken, but if everybody was doing what they're supposed to do, I don't think it would be as bad as it is, really. I think it should be done over the whole island rather than just one specific area because I don't think COVID is from any particular county. If it's going to be Monaghan, Cavan, Fermanagh, Armagh, Dublin, Cork, you know, it should be an all-Ireland approach. Based of the last lockdown, it just affected people's morale, and I think um, it's just about living along with it rather than putting restrictions on the. It's just something that's unseen. 
we're putting the right precautions and everyone's trying their best. I just think we're fine what we're doing now. In my head, no one's to blame for it. We're all in this together, so... We, we need to be on the same hymn sheet, really, don't we? Yes. Yeah, south and north. One difference is that the schools in the north will be closed on Monday, but in the south uh, they'll be open. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they seem to think children aren't infecting others, so and the kids need to go to school. I suppose it, we, we find out eventually whether it was wrong or right. It was difficult, but I really understand why we have to do it, and we do. There was no alternative. I mean, if everybody did what we are doing, in fact, you know, but then you wouldn't know sure it would spread anyway. I, it's very difficult. But no, I don't. I agree totally with all the restrictions. We have been doing on and on. Like we do a lot of walking, so it doesn't bother us. We walk the country roads and uh, it, it hasn't impacted on us in, in the slightest. Yes, it has. <laughs> well, I think so. I miss meeting friends for coffee and I meet getting out. Oh, I do. But look, as I say, we have to do it. You obviously heard the news last night did, about yeah. the movement to level four. What do you make of it? It's just mad at the moment, so people just try and keep their distance and all, and I don't know what's going to happen. Something had to be done, there was a lot of cases at the moment, and it's just tough on all families and all. Glad to see it move up a level, it, like it was expected. You know, the, the, the numbers are going up, so what's the government meant to do? Other than lockdown, and hopefully people will learn the lessons and do what they're meant to do this time. Some of the people in Monaghan Town sharing their thoughts on Level 4. We can now speak to Dr Aileen Brides of the Waterside Medical Centre here in the town. Dr Brides, thanks for joining us this morning. Were you seeing a, a rise in, in COVID consultations? Were you seeing that playing out in the town? Absolutely. We've had a massive surge in COVID cases over the last two to three weeks with 30 positive cases in our practice alone in the last two weeks. We had five yesterday and we're just a two-doctor practice. Thankfully, the majority of cases are young. I've had three in their 80s, but everybody's doing well so far. I think probably the two main reasons for the surge were firstly, people travelling across the border to socialise. And secondly, there was a huge GAA match about three weeks ago, which led to a large outbreak locally. And to move to level four, I mean, this will come as a terrible blow to, to businesses and people in this town. What do you think, how can we ensure, I suppose, that it will be a success and, and that they're not going to be restricting their movements to such a degree for, for weeks on end? Well, I feel Neffet and the government have had very little choice but to recommend a move to level four. As a GP, I think it's absolutely vital that we keep our non-COVID hospital services going. These all had to close in March and April. And if the hospitals become overwhelmed again, the same thing is going to happen. I think it's vital that we reduce our movements, reduce our social contacts in order to allow our hospitals to maintain the services they're currently offering. At the same time, we need to ramp up our contact tracing. I would like to see a move to weekly testing of staff and residents in nursing homes. I think currently that's happening every two weeks. And I would like us to be able to maintain as many primary care services, such as primary care psychology and other essential services. The only way we can do that is for people to restrict their movements, continue to socially distance, and then hopefully we will be able to continue offering essential medical services going forward into the winter. Just finally, we heard there and there's a bit of confusion about level three, level four. What, what are the differences? Um, did you sense that yourself? Is there um, perhaps a poor understanding of, of what exactly is expected in level four? Well, I'll be honest, I was a little confused myself and had to look it up last night. But I think the fact there's a nationwide restriction on visitors to people's homes. Well, 
that's probably one of the main factors of level four. I think everybody just has to take a bit of personal responsibility. The numbers are rising, the hospital admissions are rising, the ICU admissions are rising. And thus, I've seen things on Twitter like, how can they police this? Well, it's not about policing it. It's about taking personal responsibility, staying at home, not making unnecessary journeys and not visiting any place that you don't need to go. Just finally, Brian Renhan of uh, Renhan's Pub in Clontibbert. Clon uh, we saw there yesterday that the North has, has closed their pubs now, but up until this point, obviously you've had your own pub closed, which has been a terrible blow, but you thought that pubs in the North being open, it was a problem for a border county like this? Well, we all knew what the numbers were in the North, and yet um, the pubs were open in the North, so our customers that were living in an area where there was little or no numbers were going north to socialise and they were bringing the COVID back and they were getting infected with COVID. And it was very hard for the publicans along the border to see ourselves closed for seven months, uh, trying to make ends meet, some of us on the verge of bankruptcy. And yet the Northern Ireland was a completely different world. Completely, you could drive across the border and think you were on a different planet, the way they operated over there. Completely different. You've an issue too with the off-licences. They're going to be closing at 8 o'clock in the north, but do you think that there needs to be some sort of restriction here on off-licences? Well, I think it's long past time that the government sat down with the Vintners Federation had a long, hard conversation about off-sales with the multi multiples. Like Dr Tony Houlihan has often said that, alcohol, that COVID loves alcohol, yet the off-licences are closed, <coughs> which is encourages house parties. Like These off-licences and multiples are selling alcohol at half the price that we can buy it at so they're encouraging house parties so at least in the pub you were drinking in a controlled environment so i think it's time we brought alcohol back into that controlled environment back into the pub and away from these multiples and um finance stations that are selling at hand over fist for next to nothing i'd lost i lost a lot of them as well yeah. Well, look at there. We must leave it to both of you. Thanks very much for joining us. That's it for Monaghan Town. It's back to you in Dublin. Ryanair has said it's closing its bases in Cork and Shannon for the winter. Our business editor, Will Goodbody, has more. Uh, this wasn't unexpected, Will, was it? No, Anya, good morning. Unfortunately, not a massive surprise at this point. Uh, my colleague Pascal Sheehy had reported a number of weeks ago that staff in the bases had been warned this might happen if the government didn't move to open up air travel by adopting the new European or EU traffic light system. Ryanair had reiterated that warning a number of times since, but this morning comes the confirmation that the plan is to go ahead. The airline is blaming increased flight restrictions imposed by EU governments, which have led to air travel uh, to and from much of Central Europe, the UK, Ireland, Austria, Belgium and Portugal being heavily curtailed. This has caused forward bookings to weaken slightly in October, but materially in November and December, the airline says. And in light of these weaker bookings, it now plans to operate around 65% of its winter route network but with reduced uh, frequencies and a 70% load factor and overall it's taking capacity down from 60% to 40% of last year's uh, numbers. That means there will be a winter closure of bases in Cork and Shannon, also in Toulouse in France and significant base aircraft cuts in Belgium, Germany, Spain, Portugal and Vienna. Overall now, Ryanair expects to carry 38 million uh, guests or passengers this year compared to 149 million last year. And Ryanair's group CEO, Michael O'Leary, said it deeply regrets the cuts, which he said had been forced upon it by government mismanagement of EU air travel. He said our focus continues to be on maintaining as large a schedule as we can sensibly operate to keep our aircraft, our pilots and our cabin crew current and employed while minimising job losses. He also said it's inevitable Ryanair will be implementing more unpaid leave and job sharing uh, over the winter 
in bases where it's agreed reduced working time and pay. And he also warned there will be more redundancies at those small number of cabin crew bases where it still has not secured agreement on working time and pay cuts, which is the only alternative, he says. Uh, How much was allowed in the budget uh, for the regional airports, Will? So there have been quite a call in the run-up to the budget for uh, for some kind of help for, for uh, aviation uh, in general uh, and in particular for the airports. What uh, they got was €10 million Euro, uh, between Cork and Shannon airports, uh, nothing specifically for uh, Dublin airport. Uh, and So clearly this is going to have a huge impact on the south and the midwest regions. Uh, obviously Ryanair brings in, 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 in and out of both airports huge numbers of passengers each year uh, and many of those of course will be tourists. Uh, Ryanair serves serviced uh, 23 destinations from Cork and 13 from Shannon uh, prior to the pandemic. Uh, and of course, it will have a big impact as well on, on, on staff. Uh, I'm just waiting for an exact number from the airline, but we believe upwards of 100, maybe 130 pilots and cabin crew will be directly impacted by this. And of course, many other spin-off jobs dependent on Ryanair's uh, uh, activities right. in and out of those airports too. Will, thank you for bringing us those details on that breaking news. A big spending budget targeting cash and supports at areas of the economy hit hardest by the pandemic. Today's budget will be dominated by the fallout from COVID-19 and expect the financial firepower to be directed at businesses and the self-employed who've seen their livelihoods wiped out. Compensation too for businesses forced to close. A late sign-off was agreement to pay a Christmas bonus to the majority of those in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. With me now to preview today's budget are our economic correspondent Robert Short and our political correspondent Michal Lahan. And good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Mary. Before I talk to Robert and Michal, we can hear now uh, from the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, on his way to his office this morning. I'll be informing the Dáil at one o'clock this afternoon regarding the contents of the budget, regarding what we're looking to do in 2020 and the new plans that we are putting in place for 2021. Uh, We are keenly aware uh, of the uh, concerns, the anxiety that many have regarding the future. Uh, We understand that the air of uncertainty that we have now at the moment, uh, despite uh, all the work that we have done in trying to beat this terrible disease, is one that has such a big impact on families. It has such a big impact on the ability to keep and create jobs in the future. Uh, and uh, while I understand that level of concern and anxiety, I also believe that we as a country have the measure of this. And what we are doing in this budget is laying out the way in which we're going to support our health service, we're going to aim to support employers, uh, and we're also going to deal with the concerns uh, that of those who have lost a job in circumstances that they didn't think possible, and we as a country didn't think possible. And we will, therefore, be making decisions uh, about the level of investment we put into the economy and then how we have enough flexibility to respond to potential further change in 2021. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, saying we have the measure of this. Robert Short, coming to you first. Will you do the big picture for me here? We're hearing about rescue packages and recovery packages, uh, but what's the size of the deficit we're running? How much is the country now borrowing? And how much will be spent? 
Well, Mary, going into this budget, the government has penciled in a deficit of just over 14 billion euro, but that's before either the Minister for Finance or the Minister for Public Expenditure get to their feet and announce the various spending schemes that no doubt will be part of the budget. So that's expected to add uh, between four and six billion euro. We're not quite sure what yet, but I think we're looking at a budget deficit next year of in and around 20 billion euro. So uh, if you take it that we have run a budget deficit this year of uh, 21 billion euro, you're probably looking at uh, an additional borrowing amount for uh, the Exchequer uh, over the course of this year and next year in the region of 50 billion euro. So it's a very significant amount of public money uh, that's being used to tackle the uh, coronavirus and indeed uh, the threat of Brexit because the assumption of a no trade deal Brexit is also being baked in to next year's budget. These are eye-watering sums of money, Robert, uh, but are we in a, a very different place as regards borrowing to where we were if you go back seven, eight, nine years? Yeah, and I mean, even if you were to go back to January, so in January, the Department of Finance, they published a medium-term forecast that was just prior to the election campaign kicking off. And for this year, they penciled in a complete book budget package of just over uh, three billion euros. So, I mean, it's now obviously many multiples of that. It's, but we are in a different place. And everyone from the IMF downwards are saying that you, governments have got to spend. They've got to spend wisely, but they've got to spend in order uh, to avoid a more damaging impact on their economy. So if uh, you were to leave... Uh, if you were not to borrow and to spend to try to tackle the impact of the coronavirus, then the damage that would be done to many sectors of the economy um, would would be more permanent um, than if you tried to support economies and incomes uh, throughout the pandemic. So it's really important for governments, obviously, uh, to spend efficiently and wisely, um, but it's important for them to spend. And we've seen that central banks across the world and the ECB have been to the forefront of this as well. Uh, They've intervened in order to keep the borrowing costs of governments down by uh, mm-hmm. in various different methods but you know the ECB has been uh, directly entering the market and buying up government bonds in order to ensure that those uh, bond rates that governments are charged to borrow remain low and we saw as recently as last week uh, the government bought, uh, borrowing uh, 10-year money at negative rates now that won't last mm-hmm. forever and it's important to stress that you know that money must be refinanced in other words you know if if they a bond investor loans us money for 10 years, they will expect to get it back, whether or not we, we, we pay it back and leave it at that, or whether we refinance it in 10 years' time. And no, no doubt in 10 years' time, the rate may be different because this extraordinary support that central banks are giving won't be around forever. All right, Robert, we'll break down the detail a little further in a moment. But Michal Lahan, that was a very confident Pascal Donoghue uh, going into his office this morning ahead of this budget. How, uh, how, how has Pascal Donoghue, uh, uh, how have they been getting on himself and and Michael McGrath, who's now uh, Public Expenditure and Reform Minister. Well, apparently the the word around political circles is that this was quite a constructive process. Uh, And both veterans of many budgets say there hasn't been anything like it before. Uh, It's freed from the normal shackles of budgets, which inevitably have to have an eye around more constraints than this one would. Uh, But of course, it does. It is faced with the ultimate constraints, the fact that this is borrowed money. It's not where a government would like to be. And it has those twin major problems of COVID-19 
and the possibility uh, of a no-deal Brexit in sight as well. So for all those reasons, this budget didn't really cast an eye to future elections either and by default uh, became an expansionary one. However, at the end of it, will there be any great joy around Leinster House today? Possibly not, but there may be enough there. At least that's the government hope going into that cabinet meeting this morning uh, to keep the show on the road. But it's at, it's at quite a cost. And Hall, where is the green hand in this budget? There is a green hand in it. There are things like the €300 million for retrofitting. That's one of the key things. I suppose the carbon tax increase of 750 had been well flagged anyway, but that is uh, something that the Greens would have emphasised. Then when it comes to motoring that you will see motor tax and VRT increases and that linked to emissions, which could see significant enough increases for some drivers uh, of older cars. That, I suppose, is where the green hand is. Other details just beginning to emerge this morning before that cabinet meeting, something we hadn't heard too much about, particularly around housing. I think the housing package could now be in the order of 3.3 billion and it's going to have an emphasis on building social homes, uh, increasing that stock by just under 13,000. And out of that, about 9,500 of these homes will be built. Uh, so there will also be much made of the fact that affordability measures for first-time buyers and indeed for renters, some measures there are likely to be unveiled later. And Robert Short, will you talk us through the, the tranches of money that will be made available to the different sectors and indeed how they're going to be targeted and doled out? Well, you know, I actually think that the devil will be in the detail on this. We, we heard uh, yesterday afternoon uh, some details about a new scheme. Um, I'm not quite sure if the, the title of the scheme has been agreed yet, but it's something along the lines of a COVID-restricted support scheme. Uh, so that will offer a rebate to companies that have been forced to close under level three and indeed if we go beyond that uh, restrictions of, of, of that scale and that will allow companies to get a rebate based on their uh, turnover or the tax that they've paid uh, the details of that are a little bit unclear um up to about up to a, i think is some in and around five thousand euro again uh, the details will be revealed later today that's one of the schemes We've also heard about a scheme specifically aimed towards the live arts and entertainment industry, which will be uh, some form of a, a grant payment um, to tide uh, those um, businesses over because they have not been able uh, in the main uh, to, to, to run, to remain open uh, throughout COVID. Um, and then, of course, we heard of an extension to the employment wage subsidy scheme and some tweaking to the uh, pandemic unemployment payment uh, indeed. Uh, scheme and, for self-employed people. And Michal, uh, little of any change to, to personal taxation. The Christmas bonus, it seems secure for welfare recipients and extended to the majority of those in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment. Yeah, the normal 15-month uh, rule doesn't apply here. So if people are in receipt of the pandemic unemployment payment or job seekers uh, allowance, they will qualify following fairly extensive negotiations that went on for most of yesterday. They will qualify for that double payment on December 7th. Uh, so that was seen as one of the final pieces of the jigsaw. I suppose also other things, and I suppose it's notable too that this is Fianna Fáil's first budget since the latter part of 2010. They will emphasise housing and indeed health and education too. And out of health, we know there is an increase of four billion. Now, two billion of that relates solely to COVID, uh, but other measures around increasing hospital capacity and implementing Slantacare uh, will cost in the region of about two billion euro. And the old reliables, Mihal, are they the old reliables any longer? 
Well, I think when it comes to cigarettes, it, do, it does seem like there will be a hike there, probably up to 50 cent on duties, but it doesn't seem right now on alcohol. But what you could see, not quite an old reliable, but a possible increase uh, on the betting tax. All right. Uh, Robert Charter, economics correspondent and our political correspondent, Michal Lahan. Thank you both very much. Let's get more reaction to the budget and indeed the COVID-19 situation on the ground here and in the north. We're joined by the president of Sinn Féin and TD for Dublin Centre. Mary Lou MacDonald, good morning. Good morning, Audrey. And you're welcome to the programme. Thank uh, you. We understand that the Stormont Executive will announce that pubs and restaurants will close for four weeks and schools will close for two of those weeks. Do you support the closure of schools there? Well, Audrey, the, as you know, the Executive will meet again uh, this morning um, and uh, I, I hope we'll conclude on their deliberations and I hope that we will have a public announcement um, there is no doubt, looking at the very aggressive level of transmission of the virus uh, right across the north, that additional measures have to be taken. And we've we've uh, argued for that. Um, and I believe and I hope that we will land uh, on a consensus with all of our colleagues, bearing in mind it's a five-party executive uh, in the north. Um, but I hope that work will be concluded today. I mean... It, the situation in the north is grave, it's, it's worrying, it's dangerous in fact, and there is absolutely no doubt that measures have to be taken and they need to be taken quickly. And do you think it's necessary to close schools for two weeks? Uh, I think it is, um, uh, unfortunately, and I, I say that with a heavy heart because I'm extremely conscious of the fact that children in the north have been um, very much uh, discommoded and disadvantaged by not being at school for long stretches. Um, so this is a, a very unfortunate uh, situation. But certainly, yes, I think that is one of the measures. That is a measure that has been discussed and debated uh, in the North by the executive. I don't want to intrude on their deliberations. Um, but just to repeat, I hope that there is uh, a consensus found and a plan of action, an effective plan of action announced today. And then we will be asking and relying on people uh, to dig deep again, because these are very difficult times, Audrey, for everybody. But that to is for dig sure. Deep, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely no doubt uh, about that. Very hard. And, and your party has also argued, along with many other parties, for a common approach on the island to COVID-19. Yes. So does it make sense then for schools in the border counties on this side of the border to close for one of those weeks? Well, look, what, what makes absolute sense is and has made sense from the get-go, Audrey, is that we have an all-Ireland approach. I mean, back at the very, very beginning when the, the first initial plan for this crisis was presented at a time when Leo Varadkar was still... Taoiseach, um, I had made the point consistently that we need a national approach, and that means a 32-county approach. And uh, we have a memorandum of understanding. There has been a level of cooperation. I want to acknowledge that. But I don't believe we are there yet in terms of an all-island shared approach and strategy and standards. And I think we'll pay the price for that. I think it's But a specifically on the schools now, given that they're going to close, expected to close for two weeks um, over midterm, starting from next Monday, we understand. Does it make sense for schools, given the cross-border nature of, of travel to schools, um, that they close on this side too? Well, look, I, I think it makes sense that, that the measures uh, add up and that, you know, when we're trying to control community transmission, we need to recognise, particularly in border areas, that the, the communities are 
that intermingled and intertwined. They're essentially one community mm. up along the, the border. But, but I would say this, Audrey, that uh, the problem with virus transmission is, is not unique to the north. Um, I mean, I understand that in terms of the south, as deep south as Cork, where the numbers are climbing and worrying, that we're probably about a week uh, or, or maybe 10 days at most behind the north in terms of the, the aggression of the transmission of this virus. So we, we have an issue across the island. I know Nessus will meet on Thursday and they will make a professional, a scientific and a medical assessment of where we're at. We need to listen very closely to that. But when you say things need to add up on an all-island approach specifically yeah. to schools, are, are you saying that, yes, you do think that no, schools I'm, on I'm, this side I'm, of the border I'm, have to close? I, I am taking this, we, we, we need to take this in an orderly and a thoughtful fashion. I, I'm saying to Audrey that the executive will meet today and they will conclude their deliberations and they will, they will announce their uh, plan. And I am very hopeful that it will be an effective plan and that we have found consensus um, in a, in a five-party executive. I think that is a good thing. And then, yes, of course, I, I don't think there's anybody listening to, to your programme who imagines for a minute that we can look at the transmission rates right across the island and sit back. Um, I, I think there is absolutely a need to, to understand fully what is happening around us and so it's a time to, to go to level five on this do? side of the border, given the numbers, given that level three, the Dublin figures are still the daily average is going up. The border counties, Donegal, it's going up despite level three. Is it time to move up to level five? Well, I think it's a time for, for action. I'm not, I'm not going to specify uh, levels, um, but I certainly think that we, we need an assessment. It seems I agree with you, d despite level three in the city in which I live, I, I don't see any great evidence that the levels of transmission have dropped. I'm really, really concerned, um, Audrey, to hear the news from many of our nursing homes again. We know what happened last spring. We agreed that it was an absolute scandal what happened. We also said that it wouldn't happen again. I, I am very, very concerned that we are looking at, again at uh, absolute heartbreak and trauma across our nursing homes. So we, we need to assess all of these things. And yes, we okay. need to act. Absolutely, we need to act. I want to talk to you about the budget now. Um, announced yesterday over 17 billion euro of spending. Do you accept that in these very dark times that money of that scale and where it's being targeted will give a little bit of hope to people? Oh my goodness. I, I would say to you at this time um, money of that scale was necessary and it has to give more than just a, a feeling of hope. It has to give real tangible security and some level of certainty in very, very difficult times, Audrey. And we argued for a, a large and an expansionary, expansionary budget. Some of the measures in the budget announced yesterday we argued for and we support, uh, but we believe that there are grave and serious omissions in it, not least around the whole area of income support. I am very disappointed that the cut to the pandemic unemployment payment has not been reversed. That is a mistake. We're very disappointed that the wage subsidy scheme remains not fit for purpose. That is a mistake. And there are even graver mistakes, given that at this precise point in time, in the autumn of this year and heading towards the winter with very aggressive virus transmission, there is every chance um, and possibility that we will have to have higher levels of restrictions uh, across the state. And in those circumstances, 
workers and businesses have a perfect right to expect that the state intervenes and intervenes in a way that is more than tokenistic, that is effective and that actually supports them and nurses the economy and society through very difficult times. But it's not tokenistic, is it, to give businesses who have closed up to €5,000 every week. I mean, the scale of that support to small and medium businesses across the board, is is that not remarkable? Well, that's a welcome uh, move, that particular measure, but that's that's really a cash flow issue, Audrey. What's envisaged there uh, is the front-loading for businesses of um, a tax allowance that they could claim uh, in any event. So uh, the, the cost of trading, uh, businesses will be allowed to claim now their, their, their tax relief on that. That's a good thing, but bear in mind, I don't think they're going to be able to claim it twice. So they will make up for that and pay more tax as and when they're back trading in normal circumstances, I imagine, next year. But is that a good thing? Of course, that, that's a, a level of uh, relief. However, it doesn't amount to the kind of grant aid that particularly small and, and medium-sized businesses need and have been calling for consistently throughout this uh, crisis. And bearing in mind that not every business is equally affected. Some businesses are down 20 or 30 percent. Some businesses are flat out. They're they're not functioning. So we we have always argued for a a tailored and an effective response to that. We think also that the rates waiver uh, needs to be extended to next June and that that should have been made absolutely clear. We, We think our tourism and hospitality voucher that we've we've championed from the beginning is the right approach and okay. not this stay and spend initiative which and is you, complicated you, messy your, and your alternative budget uh, just fine your alternative budget had an extra six billion euro in it all borrowed money are yeah. you glad then that you didn't follow your own party's policy back in 2011 when you were calling for ireland to default on its debt because had you followed that policy had the country followed it we wouldn't have been able to borrow anything at the moment Well, the reason that we can borrow on such a a grand scale is because the fiscal rules uh, have been changed. The rules of the game have changed because the European system is providing a a, a backstop uh, and support for all of our economies. And our reputation on the markets has been restored. Well, I I mean, this this is afforded to to all economies. If if you're asking me straight, uh, was it correct that 25 billion of taxpayers' money got pumped into Anglo-Irish Bank. The answer to that is no. No, but uh, was it correct not to default on the debt? And I'm never going to be convinced that that was the correct course of action, but that's done now. The difference now is there is very large-scale borrowing, but it has to deliver for citizens on the ground. And I think people will assess this budget when we get past the big headline figures and renters will ask, is there anything in this for me? The answer is no. People with huge childcare costs will ask, well, what's happening, given that we pay the highest child cost uh, in Europe, is there any relief in that? The answer is no. People okay. will look at the carbon tax and say, well, how is it that rural dwellers and low-income people get hit again? So th- this budget needed to be big. It needed to think big. The figures are big, for sure. There are some good parts in it. I'm delighted that there is a decent allocation for disability services, but it's the first step only for that. But you will find as time goes on and as reality comes home to roost in the area of housing, for example, we're left with the same old same. And I'm very disappointed by that. 
Mary Lou MacDonald, we appreciate your time this morning. Thank you Thank very you much indeed, you. President of Sinn Féin and TD for Dublin Central. The final report from the Commission of Investigation into Mother and Baby Homes is due to be published within the next number of weeks. It follows a five-year investigation during which an invaluable amount of information and data has been gathered. But now there's grave concern over new legislation that would see records being sent to Tusla, which may make it difficult for former residents of mother and baby homes to access this information. Let's talk some more about this now with Dr Maeve O'Rourke, Human Rights Lecturer at NUIG. Maeve, good morning and thank you for, for joining us. Uh, let's talk about what's happening in the Shannon today, maybe first of all. They're going to debate amendments uh, to this bill. What's the significance uh, of this bill and what it's seeking to do? This bill, um, the Minister says, is, is just a, a pretty technical, small bill The Commission seems to have got in touch with the Department to say it feels it would have to destroy the personal data that it gathered. Um, If it doesn't get this extra legislation, it it doesn't really make sense to me because the existing 2004 Commissions of Investigation Act requires every Commission to transfer every single document it gathered or created. But we don't have a massive problem. Those of us who are advocating with, you know, clarifying that the Commission, the bigger problem is the other part of this bill chops off part of the archive that under the existing act should all go to the minister and sends it to Tuzla without the minister even keeping a copy. Tuzla has been criticised for decades and more recently extremely intensely by the very um, co- uh, the very body, the Collaborative Forum of People with Experience of Mother and Baby Homes that was set up to advise the Department of Children on what it should do with records of mother and baby homes. They say very clearly, and it's clear from Tuzla's public statements, that it operates a blanket policy of consistency Considering adopted people's first names to be third party data and it operates a risk assessment of all adopted people who apply for their name by trying to contact natural extended family members even where parents are dead to try to obtain consent for the disclosure to an adopted person of their first name at birth. But but Maeve, Maeve, you know, are there clear and important issues of confidentiality here, commitments that were given? Uh, The Minister for Children saying uh, the information from the Commission has to be protected because he's committed to introducing birth information and tracing legislation in the future. Well, the GDPR is perfectly um, fine legislation for personal data access, but also I think what those arguments that you are reflecting there go to is the fact that apart from what goes to Tuzla, every other document in the entire archive of the Commission of Investigation is, according to the department, to be sealed for the next 30 years. Now, that includes every single record that came from every government department that gave evidence to the Commission that should actually be in the National Archives, every document that came from the archives of the church, the institutions, the diocese, the bishops, of course, all of the transcripts of testimony of survivors, and that apparently is to be kept from the survivors themselves, and evidence that would have been given by various experts, historians, not to mention the people who ran the institutions. No justification has been given for why this material en masse needs to be sealed. And one of the crucial amendments that we are seeking today in the Shannon and that people have put in in the Dole is that an anonymised index would be produced within a month or soon after that by the government when the minister gets the index so that consultation can be had into the legislation that's needed now to unseal further parts of the archive because they can show 
by sending some of it to Tuzla that actually the Oireachtas can legislate to unseal. Can you do that, though, without going back to each and every individual who gave evidence, perhaps, or gave statements uh, under a a commitment to confidentiality and asking them uh, to be released from from that commitment of confidentiality? We're saying that the anonymised index is what should be produced now. Then there can be consultation over the legislation that releases things. People can give consent if they wish to get their statement back. But no government department was entitled, as of right, to give evidence that should be in the National Archives to a commission of investigation and therefore to say, I gave my evidence in confidence that this can never be revealed. We know that abuse of an inordinate scale happened in mother and baby homes and that the report will reveal this. But the report cannot be the monopoly on history and on telling history. 4,000 pages is never going to be enough to give all perspectives, to go behind everything that happened. And survivors of abuse have a right to be able to piece together the history for themselves. And our state needs to be able to learn and future generations need to be protected. And we cannot do that if we're not willing to allow truth telling and access to information. Dr Maeve O'Rourke from NUIG, thank you very much. Well, there's not too much cheer in the news this morning, but it's not all doom and gloom in Morning Ireland. The world may be in the grip of a pandemic, but we are still living through a really beautiful autumn. And Kian McCormick reports now from Wicklow on the glorious fall colours in the company of landscape photographer Peter Gordon. We're in Clockley Woods, which is sort of between Blessington, let's say, and the Sally Gap Crossroads. Peter Gordon explains our location. It's a forest that has some incredible deciduous trees. It has a beautiful little river running through the middle of it. It has a fantastic old stone bridge. As he does, we walk. And there's a crunch of leaves underfoot. Autumn is unquestionably my favourite time of year to take pictures in. He's a professional photographer with Explore Light Fine Art Photography. There's a few reasons around that. The main one is the colour. You know, the colour is so beautiful at this time of year. Rusty ferns border the fast-flowing river where Peter Gordon is framing a shot. Red and yellow leaves rest on the vibrant green mossy rocks beside him. To be up here at this point of change and to see all these amazing vibrant yellows sort of coming to the fore now, it's almost meditative being up here on your own. It's just fantastic. Peter says... This is only the start of what can be one of nature's spectacular showings. It's autumn. The leaves are all changing all around me, which is just amazing to see. But you can see it everywhere. You can see it on the streets at home. You can see it in the mountains. And it's just a special time of year. In Newcastle and County Wicklow, Professor of Botany at Trinity College Dublin, Jennifer McElwain, is working from home. A lot of the leaves are still very green but you can see the beech trees are beginning to colour yellow, horse chestnut trees, conkers are falling, they're beginning to turn orangey and yellow. Just like Peter Gordon, Professor McElwain is expecting a dramatic show of colour this year. We have these beautiful long sunshine days. We know based on the science that the colour of leaves is very strongly linked to the light levels. So if we'd had a dull, cloudy, wet autumn, we wouldn't have such a spectacular display. But because we have relatively still autumn with 
not too much storminess, so the leaves haven't been whipped off. And we've got these bright sunshine days. I think we're going to be looking at intense colour in the next week to two weeks. The science of what we see relates to plants feeding themselves. Nutrients are taken back from the leaves and they change colour. That job of reabsorbing all of those, that goodness, the nutrients that the the plant needs to survive involves pigments and those pigments we see as yellow and red. But Professor McElwain adds there are a number of theories on why leaves change colour. One reason why we think leaves go a beautiful colour is to protect them from light. Another reason is that the colour is signalling to insects, particularly aphids, to say don't overwinter on me because I'm toxic. Another hypothesis is that the red colour and the yellow colour is signalling to birds, my berries are ripe, come and disperse my seeds. Oh, isn't that sweet? That was Trinity College botany professor Jennifer McElwain ending Kean McCormick's report. And Peter Gordon's uh, photographs can be seen at explorelightfineartphotographyworkshops.com. <laughs> You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.